Hi, this is Ambria, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the June 10th issue of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Indictments Presents Evidence Trump's Actions Were More Blatant Than Known by Alan Furr and Maggie Haberman. The indictment of former President Donald J. Trump that was unsealed on Friday provided compelling evidence that Mr. Trump's handling of classified documents was more cavalier and his efforts to obstruct the government's attempts to retrieve them more blatant than previously known. On nearly every one of its 49 pages, the indictment revealed yet another example of Mr. Trump's indifference towards the country's most sensitive secrets and of his persistent willfulness in having his aides and lawyers stymie government attempts to get the records back. Mr. Trump will have an opportunity in court to rebut the account presented by the special counsel Jack Smith, but the evidence cited refers to records casually kept in a bathroom and on a ballroom stage at Mar-a-Lago, his private club and residence in Florida. There was also a description of a knocked-over stack of boxes lying in a basement storage room, their contents, including a secret intelligence document, spilled on the floor. At one point, the indictment included an almost cartoonish image, quoting notes from one of Mr. Trump's own lawyers. It relates how the former president made a plucking motion as if to suggest that the lawyer should go through a folder full of classified materials and if there's anything really bad in there, like, you know, pluck it out. A classic example of what is known as a speaking indictment the charging document, which was filled on Thursday in Federal District Court in Miami, did far more than merely lay out seven crimes, among them obstruction of justice and the willful retention of national defense records. The indictment also showcased the bedrock elements of the former president's personality, his sense of bombast and vengeance, his belief that everything he touches belongs to him, and his admiration of people for their underhanded craftiness and gamesmanship with the authorities. It recounts, for instance, how Mr. Trump had only praised for an unnamed aide to Hillary Clinton, who, at least in his narration of the story, helped Mrs. Clinton destroy tens of thousands of emails from a private server. He did a great job, the indictment quotes Mr. Trump as telling one of his lawyers. Why? Because in Mr. Trump's account, the aide ensured that Mrs. Clinton didn't get in any trouble. The startling collection of covert material referred to in the indictment included documents about U.S. domestic nuclear programs, potential vulnerabilities to an attack on the homeland, and plans for retaliatory strikes on foreign adversaries. In the bluntest language possible, the indictment explained just how dangerous this was. The unauthorized disclosure of these classified documents could put at risk the national security of the United States, foreign relations, and the safety of the United States military and human sources and the continued viability of sensitive intelligence collections methods, the indictment said. Though the strength of Mr. Smith's case will ultimately be tested by Mr. Trump's lawyers, the evidence that the special counsel and his team assembled was abundant and varied. The indictment included photographs, a transcript of a recording of Mr. Trump, and of course the lawyer's notes, which were obtained through a highly unusual legal tactic of working around attorney-client privilege. All of this taken together offered an intimate glimpse into Mr. Trump's world at Mar-a-Lago, a domain where he apparently enforced a sense of personal control. In one anecdote in the indictment, two employees of Mar-a-Lago are described exchanging text messages about Mr. Trump asking Walt Nada, one of his close aides, to move boxes of government records out of a business center at the property so that other workers could use it as an office. Mr. Nada was charged with conspiring with Mr. Trump to obstruct justice in the case. The indictment quotes one of the employees writing to the other, Okay, so POTUS specifically asked Walt for those boxes to be in the business center because they are his papers. In a similar fashion, the indictment describes Mr. Trump as seeking to stonewall both the prosecutors who issued a subpoena to him for all of the classified material he had and the lawyer, M. Evan Corcoran, whom he had hired specifically to help him comply with that subpoena. I don't want anyone looking through my boxes. I really don't, it quotes Mr. Trump as telling Mr. Corcoran. I don't want you looking through my boxes. The indictment did not merely accuse Mr. Trump of holding on to all of these files. 
It also noted that on at least two occasions, he showed or came close to showing classified material to others who lacked the proper security clearances to view them. One of those episodes took place in August or September 2021 when Mr. Trump showed a representative of his political action committee the map of a certain country, commenting that a military operation there was not going well, the indictment said. It went on to describe how Mr. Trump quickly realized he should not have been displaying the map and told the representative to not get too close. The indictment also related an account of a meeting in July 2021 when Mr. Trump brandished a plan of attack against Iran to visitors at his golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey. To the apparent discomfort of his aides, one of whom declared, now we have a problem amid laughter, Mr. Trump admitted that he could have declassified the highly confidential document when he was president, but now it was too late because he was out of office. And yet, as the indictment described in painful detail, he also seemed unable to control himself. This is secret information, it quoted him as saying, look, look at this. Will wildfires like these become the new normal? by Somani Sengupta. With so much toxic wildfire smoke moving across the Canadian border and upending life across the eastern United States, it raises a troubling question. Will there be more of this in the years ahead? And if so, what can be done about it? First, let's take a step back. Global average temperatures have increased because of the unchecked burning of coal, oil, and gas for 150 years. That has created the conditions for more frequent and intense heat waves. The extra heat in the atmosphere has created a greater likelihood of extreme, sometimes catastrophic weather all over the world. While that doesn't mean the same extremes in the same places all the time, certain places are more susceptible to certain disasters by virtue of geography. Australia could see more intense drought. Low-lying islands are projected to experience higher storm surges as sea levels rise. In places that become hot and dry, wildfires can become more prevalent or intense. The unifying fact is that more heat is the new normal. The best way to reduce the risk of higher temperatures in the future, scientists say, is to reduce the burning of fossil fuels. There are also many ways to adapt to hotter weather and its hazards. Eastern Canada, which erupted in extraordinary blazes, is projected to be wetter on average, especially in winter. The projections are less clear for summers when soil moisture is important for creating fire conditions, according to Park Williams, a climate scientist at the University of California, Los Angeles. Eastern North America is also projected to become much hotter with many more days when the maximum temperature will climb above 35 degrees Celsius or 95 degrees Fahrenheit, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So, in a dry year, the extra heat is likely to aggravate fire risks, that's what happened this year in parts of Quebec. Snow melted early, spring was unusually dry, and trees turned to tinder. The northeastern United States is also projected to be wetter in the coming years. But as Ellen L. McRae, the Eastern Regional Climate Services Director at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said, we have also been experiencing seasonal droughts more often, in part due to increasing temperatures, changing precipitation patterns, and loss of soil moisture. As for air pollution, she said, wildfire smoke from the west, even dust across the Sahara, can travel across the globe to the United States, bringing with it hazardous particulate matter, according to the latest National Climate Assessment published in 2018. From a human health perspective, we are concerned about the frequency and duration of such smoke events, said Leslie Ann dupigny Guro, a climate scientist at the University of Vermont who led the report's Northeastern U.S. chapter. By 2035, according to the National Climate Assessment, average temperatures are projected to increase by more than 2 degrees Celsius, or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, from the pre-industrial era. That's larger and earlier than the global average. Rising average temperatures increase the chances of more frequent and intense heat waves. That's especially risky for people who work outdoors or who cannot afford air conditioning. Second, for coastal areas of the Northeast, there's the risk of sea level rise. That means flooding dangers affecting millions of people. Cities have long been warned to prepare by improving drainage, opening of floodplains, planting shade trees, and encouraging better insulation for buildings. 
In the southeastern United States, climate models indicate increased fire risk and a longer fire season. Fires ignited by lightning, as opposed to humans, are projected to increase by at least 30 percent by 2060, the National Climate Assessment said. In western states, the wildfire season is already longer because of higher temperatures, drought, and earlier snowmelt. By mid-century, the assessment concluded, the area burned there could at least double. California could get a break this year because of a wet winter and spring, but not necessarily the Pacific Northwest. Dr. Williams, the climate scientist, said that if a major heat wave occurs in that region this summer, I expect that fuels will be plenty dry to sustain larger fires. Most fires in Quebec appear to have been started by lightning. Elsewhere, such as in the western United States, human carelessness and a mismanagement of aging power lines have led to catastrophic fires. Both are fixable problems. Fire experts say that the mechanical thinning of forests, as well as prescribed burns, the intentional burning of underbrush, can also reduce the spread of wildfires, but with risks. Some things that protect people from heat also help protect wildfire smoke. The most efficient way to keep temperatures from rising further is to reduce the combustion of fossil fuels. They are the drivers of heat and its hazards. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. wants to be president. Cheryl Hines is along for the ride by Caitlin Moscatello. On a quiet Thursday in May, there was almost no indication that anyone in Cheryl Hines' house was running for president. A hockey stick poked out from a bush in front of the Spanish colonial home in the Brentwood neighborhood of Los Angeles. Leaning up against the wall outside were several surfboards caked with wax, at least one of which belonged to her husband, the 69-year-old environmental lawyer and vaccine skeptic Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who had announced his candidacy for the 2024 Democratic nomination only four weeks earlier. In the foyer, the family's three dogs wagged their tails near a portrait of Mr. Kennedy's famous uncle and aunt, John F. Kennedy and Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, by the artist Romero Brito. Over the door hung an even larger portrait of Miss Hines and Mr. Kennedy, also by Mr. Brito, a friend of the couple. Miss Hines, 57, has been in many spotlights during her three decades as a professional actress, most famously for her role as Larry David's wife on Curb Your Enthusiasm. But this new one is different. After a lifetime of not being particularly political, she finds herself not only married to a man from a storied American political family, but also attached to his long-shot campaign for the highest office in the country. Mr. Kennedy is the son of former United States Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy. And it seems clear he will need Ms. Hines, who is in the unique position of being more recognizable to some voters than her candidate husband, to help soften his image for those put off by his crusade against vaccines and history of promoting conspiracy theories, such as the false narrative that Bill Gates champions vaccines for financial gain. I support Bobby, and I want to be there for him, and I want him to feel loved and supported by me, said Ms. Hines, who is a registered Democrat. And at the same time, I don't feel the need to go to every political event because I do have my own career. Mr. Kennedy, in an interview with the New York Times a few weeks later, said that he sees his wife as crucial to his success. I think ultimately, if I get elected, Cheryl will have played a huge role in that, he said. She's an enormous asset to me, and I don't think we've really unveiled her in her true power yet. He added, she has a gift that she's kind of mesmerizing when she's on TV and she's talking because she's so spontaneous. And she has this, what I would call a quick, a fast twitch reflex when it comes to a conversation. Friends keep checking in on her. Elections can get ugly and Mr. Kennedy's campaign, seemingly by design, will put him in contact with many of this country's more unconventional voters. I'm bracing myself for it, said Miss Hines of the public scrutiny that comes with campaigning while sitting in her home office. On the bookshelf, there's a plaque of her Hollywood Walk of Fame star and a humorous framed photo of Mr. David in a turtleneck and fake mustache holding a pipe with a note congratulating her. It is hard not to live in that space of, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And is it going to be as terrible as I think? In her first interview since her husband announced his candidacy, Ms. Hines initially appeared at ease. She has done hundreds of interviews throughout her career and, as a seasoned improv actress, is known to be quick on her feet and sharply funny. 
She cut her teeth in the Groundlings, a Los Angeles-based improv troupe. Curb is outlined, but unscripted. In some ways, answering questions from a stranger is just another form of yes and. With improv, it's challenging because you don't know what's coming next. You don't know what the audience is going to shoot out, she said. Where are these two people? They're scooping poop in the lion's den at the zoo. Lights go down, lights go up. You have to commit 100%, she continued, or it's not funny or interesting. But here's a scenario that would challenge even an improv master. You are beloved by fans and peers and have managed to steer clear of controversy your entire career, but fall in love with a man who touches it off regularly with his often outlandish claims. A man who was kicked off Instagram along with his anti-vaccine nonprofit, Children's Health Defense, for spreading misinformation during the pandemic. Instagram reinstated Mr. Kennedy's personal account earlier this month because of his candidacy. Who last year drew criticism and later apologized when, at a rally against vaccine mandates in Washington, he spoke against 5G technology, surveillance, and what he called technological mechanisms for control, and said, even in Hitler's Germany, you could cross the Alps to Switzerland. You could hide in an attic like Anne Frank did, who just this week suggested SSRIs and benzos and other drugs might be responsible for America's school shooting problem. Mr. Kennedy told the Times that assault rifles clearly make the world more dangerous and we should figure out a way to limit that impact, but added there's something else happening. Now, he is running for president and you, a genuine ray of light, says the producer Suzanne Todd, and whom actor Alec Baldwin has said everybody loves, are along for the ride. After years of being able to distance yourself from your husband's most problematic views, you now risk being seen as at least tactically embracing them by standing by and smiling if he says things on the campaign trail that are demonstrably untrue. Introduced by Larry David Miss Hines was raised in Tallahassee, Florida, a thousand miles away, geographically and culturally, from the Kennedy compound in Hyannis, Massachusetts, where she and Mr. Kennedy wed in 2014. Her father, who worked in construction, and her mother, an assistant at the Department of Revenue, were private about their politics, if they even had any. If I ever asked my mom who she voted for, she would tell me it's nobody's business, and it was her own secret, Ms. Hines said. I don't recall my dad ever once talking about politics or current events, so it was not part of my life. Really, the only thing I knew about the Kennedys was what I learned in public school in history. After cosmetology school in the University of Central Florida, her first acting job was at Universal Studios, where she performed the shower scene from Psycho up to 15 times a day for a live audience. It was a gig that involved standing in a flesh-colored bodysuit while an audience member stabbed her with a rubber knife. In her 30s, practically of a certain age in Hollywood years, Miss Hines was still paying her dues bartending, working as a personal assistant to the filmmaker and actor Rob Reiner, and going to improv classes. Her break came in 1999 when she was cast in Curb Your Enthusiasm. In 2002, the show won the first of its many Emmys and Golden Globes. Miss Hines recalled being backstage at the Golden Globe Awards and running into Harrison Ford. When he stopped to congratulate her, she extended her hand and said, I'm Cheryl Hines. Harrison Ford said, I know who you are. And I thought, oh my God, what? She and Mr. Kennedy met in 2006 when Mr. David, a longtime friend of Mr. Kennedy's, introduced them at a ski weekend fundraiser in Banff, Canada for Waterkeeper Alliance, an environmental nonprofit co-founded by Mr. Kennedy. Ms. Hines had no plans to ski, but the next thing you know, we're in skis and we're on a ski lift, she said. I was looking at Larry like, what is happening? He's like, yeah, giving an indication like, that's Bobby. Ms. Hines said she was aware of Mr. Kennedy's work as an environmental lawyer, but I still didn't know too much about the politics of it all. By then, Ms. Hines was well entrenched in her own philanthropic work. For the nonprofit United Cerebral Palsy, after her nephew was diagnosed, and for under-resourced schools. Cheryl was always reachable and accessible to me, said Jacqueline Sanderlin a former principal and district administrator of the Compton Unified School District. She wasn't a mercenary person. She wasn't doing this for herself. Ms. Hines and Mr. Kennedy spent time together at another ski event in 2011 when they each were going through a divorce and eventually began dating long distance. 
Mr. David never intended for them to connect romantically, Ms. Hines noted. Mr. David told her the relationship was a bad idea, which she said was unjust. It's part of the fun of Larry. You just know no matter what you say to him, he's going to say, why would you do that? Are you crazy? She was attracted to Mr. Kennedy's wit. Bobby is very smart and funny, although a lot of people don't see the funny side, she said. He also has this sense of adventure that will catapult me outside of my comfort zone, which I find exciting most of the time. How about now, with him running for office? It seems like, what am I getting myself into? Their relationship made headlines when tragedy struck. In May of 2012, Mr. Kennedy's second wife, Mary Richardson Kennedy, died by suicide at her home in Bedford, New York. Miss Hines stayed on the West Coast while Mr. Kennedy focused on his children. I gave him the space and time to heal, she said. I think grief is very personal. When Miss Hines and Mr. Kennedy got married two years later, Mr. Kennedy gave a speech in which he repeatedly called Miss Hines unflappable. It was to the level where we joked about it afterward, said Miss Todd, a close friend of Miss Hines. But he's actually right, because Cheryl is unflappable. Her career had continued at a clip. Curb returned in 2017 after a six-year hiatus. She joined the cast of the film A Bad Mom's Christmas, along with Susan Sarandon and Christine Baranski, guest starred in a slew of sitcoms, and started a podcast about documentaries with the comedian Tig Notaro. Mr. Kennedy had also been busy. In 2016, he founded the World Mercury Project, which became the Children's Health Defense, a nonprofit that advocates against vaccines for children. He co-wrote a book on vaccines and began posting anti-vaccine propaganda on social media. During the pandemic, Mr. Kennedy became an even louder voice in the anti-vaccine movement, encouraging people to do your own research, even as the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the World Health Organization deemed the COVID vaccines safe and effective. Mr. Kennedy has long expressed skepticism about vaccines, but his intensity grew with his platform and audience. He published another book, Real Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, Big Pharma, in the Global War on Democracy and Public Health, which has blurbs from the former Fox News anchor Tuck Carlson, the director Oliver Stone, and the lawyer Alan Dershowitz, among others. Ms. Hines stayed out of the fray for most of the pandemic. On her Instagram, she shared images of herself wearing a mask, as well as posts about her involvement with Waterkeeper Alliance, notably never mentioning children's health defense, and didn't comment on her husband's vaccine rhetoric. But then Mr. Kennedy made his Holocaust remark and claimed that Dr. Anthony Fauci, the most visible public health leader fighting COVID, was orchestrating fascism. My husband's opinions are not a reflection of my own. While we love each other, we differ on many current issues, Ms. Hines wrote on Twitter. The next day, she tweeted again, calling the Holocaust reference reprehensible. The atrocities that millions endured during the Holocaust should never be compared to anyone or anything, she wrote. Mr. Kennedy said it was a difficult time for them. I saw how it was affecting her life and I said to her, we should just announce that we are separated so that you can have some distance from me, he said. We wouldn't really be doing anything. We would just, I felt so desperate about protecting her at a time where my statements and my decisions were impacting her. He said he even wrote up a news release, though it never went out. Ms. Tyne said that was never an option, although she was upset with Mr. Kennedy for his choice of words. It was also frustrating to hear Bobby say things that could so easily be twisted into snippets that misrepresented his meaning and didn't represent who he is, she said. Several months later, Mr. Kennedy approached her to say he was considering running for office. It was definitely a discussion, Ms. Hines said, because he said, if you don't want me to do it, I won't. She ultimately agreed. On June 5th, Ms. Hines was pulled into a Twitter Spaces conversation with Mr. Kennedy and Elon Musk, even though she hadn't intended to participate. After she gave a measured comment about how she feels about her husband running for office, it's been really interesting, she said, and at times exciting. Mr. Kennedy said that to cope with the campaign, Ms. Hines had joked she was going to invent a new kind of margarita that has Xanax in it. Mr. Kennedy's traction has been surprising. 
A recent CNN poll found that Mr. Kennedy has support from 20% of Democratic or Democratic-leaning voters, though not the multiple members of his own family who have publicly said they will support President Biden. Jack Dorsey, the former chief executive of Twitter, has endorsed him. Steve Bannon has been supportive of Mr. Kennedy's campaign, floating the idea of a Trump-Kennedy ticket. Alex Jones and other right-wing conspiracy theorists have also expressed enthusiasm. Mr. Kennedy said he has never met Mr. Jones and has never spoken to Mr. Bannon or Mr. Jones about my presidential campaign. When asked twice if he would reject an endorsement from Mr. Jones, who lost a billion-dollar lawsuit for repeatedly saying the 2012 Sandy Hook shooting that killed 20 first-graders and six educators in Newtown, Connecticut, was a government hoax, Mr. Kennedy did not respond. Mr. Kennedy said that he would love to go on Steve Bannon's show, but Cheryl just can't bear that, so he has not. Back at her home in Los Angeles, what Miss Hines seemed most excited to talk about was Hines Plus Young, the eco-friendly company she recently started with her 19-year-old daughter, Katherine Young. It is mostly skincare and candles, and one scent is called Hyena Seagrass. This, the skincare, the podcast, the film, and TV projects was her world, not whatever was happening on the campaign trail. Ms. Hines does have issues she cares about, including school safety and bodily autonomy, which she said includes abortion, but more broadly in, in the ability to make decisions about our body with a doctor, not with a politician. She declined to comment on whether that includes vaccines. She had no canned answers prepared about her husband's political career, but unlike in her improv, she seemed unsure what to say. On potentially being first lady, I haven't really spent time in that space because we're not there yet. On how much she has prepped for the trail, every day I learn a lot. On which current issues specifically she was referring to when she tweeted that she and her husband defer. Okay, let me think here. There was a 49 second pause then, which didn't resolve in a clear answer. Ms. Hines, who appeared in a 2006 public service announcement encouraging people to get a whooping cough booster vaccine and who had her own daughter vaccinated when she was young, had not previously commented on Mr. Kennedy's views. I see both sides of the vaccine situation, she said. There's one side that feels scared if they don't get the vaccine, and then there's the side that feels scared if they do get the vaccine, because they're not sure if the vaccine is safe, and I understand that. So if Bobby is standing up and saying, well, are we sure that they're safe and every vaccine has been tested properly? That doesn't seem too much to ask, she continued. That seems like the right question to be asking. Ms. Hines tried to dodge several questions about her views on vaccines, including do you think vaccines are dangerous for children? Eventually answering in a manner that didn't criticize her husband or reveal much about her own opinion. And Mr. Kennedy has been asking questions about the safety of vaccines for years his family name and work as an environmental lawyer, giving credibility to his skepticism, which he spreads through children's health defense. In 2019, family members wrote an open letter in which they said, in part, that although they love Mr. Kennedy, on vaccines he is wrong, and called him complicit in sowing distrust of the science behind vaccines. In 2021, the Center for Countering Digital Hate asserted that Mr. Kennedy was one of 12 people responsible for the majority of anti-vaccine content on Facebook. Mr. Kennedy's campaign website makes no mention of vaccines. Instead, he has positioned himself as a fighter for the middle class and a crusader against corruption. In an effort to appeal to what he has called all the homeless Republicans and Democrats and independents who are Americans first. He wrote in an email to the Times that the principal villain in the war in the Ukraine is Vladimir Putin, but also blames the war on State Department and White House neocons. In May, he said on Russell Brand's Stay Free podcast that Ukraine is a victim of U.S. aggression by way of a proxy war. Language included on his campaign website states his intention is to make America strong again. Upon learning that an opinion piece in the Washington Post had recently compared her husband to former President Donald J. Trump, Ms. Hines' eyes widened. She tried to make sense of the observation. His skin is much thicker than mine, let's just say that, she said. Mr. Kennedy's father was killed while campaigning. His uncle was assassinated in office. A horrific loss for the country, but also for a family. He doesn't talk about that, Ms. Hines said. He's not afraid of much. 
I can't think of even one thing he's afraid of. In an interview with Breitbart News Daily, Mr. Kennedy has appeared frequently on right-wing cable shows and podcasts. He said in response to a question that involved the phrase cancel culture that Ms. Hines' career had already suffered because of her support for his candidacy. Ms. Hines clarified, I haven't lost any jobs because of my support for his candidacy, but there was a project I'm involved in where there was a pause for discussion about how his candidacy might affect what we are doing, but it has been since resolved. Mr. Kennedy added that so far, I feel a lot of support and love from most of her friends, including Larry. In a text, Mr. David clarified, yes, love and support, but I'm not supporting him. But I'm sure there's people who just don't talk to me about it, who feel uncomfortable or, you know, whatever, Mr. Kennedy continued. Ms. Hines said she was getting used to people wanting to talk to her about their political feelings and thoughts. Her strategy is to deflect. She said that she responds with the version of, this is probably something you should talk about with Bobby, although I'm happy to hear your thoughts. The day after Mr. Kennedy announced his candidacy, Mr. Reiner, Ms. Hines' friend and former boss, tweeted his support for President Biden. Her industry friends, to her relief, are also consumed with their own affairs. I went to this poker charity tournament the other night, and I thought everybody was going to be really talking to me about politics, she said. But instead, everybody was talking about the writer's strike. Ms. Hines isn't a stiff person. Her personality comes out most in the lighter moments. While talking about a scene she recalled from her time from the Groundlings, Miss Hines broke out into an impersonation of Cher singing The Hills Are Alive. She gushed as she talked about her love for her daughter and how, not completely unlike her character in A Bad Mom's Christmas, who sniffs her adult daughter's hair, one of the reasons she wanted to work with her daughter is to keep her close. Miss Hines is used to talking about her work too. Her upcoming projects include the 12th season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, a new season of the music game show I Can See Your Voice, on which she is a judge, and the comedic film Popular Theory. But when it comes to the campaign, Ms. Hines is more guarded. This feels different because it feels like every word is important, she said. Before this, really my world was just about comedy, so I could make light of things. But now I understand people are listening in a different way, and I know that it's really important to them. As the interview wound down, she laid out several Heinz plus young body creams on a coffee table to smell. It's all about taking care of yourself and relaxing, she said, so it's hilarious that it's launching right now. She then walked over to a bookshelf behind the sofa where white t-shirts with Kennedy 24 printed across the front were rolled up and stacked like towels at a gym. I'm going to give you a t-shirt, she said. I don't know who you're voting for and you can do whatever you want with it. She looked around the room again and then toward the door. I have all these Kennedy t-shirts. Hannah Gatsby's Picasso show was meant to ignite debate, and it did, by Robin Pogrebin. Some reviews were scathing, dismissing the exhibition on Picasso and feminism, co-organized by the Australian comic Hannah Gatsby as weak in scholarship, then on significant works of art, and knee-jerk in its politics. Don't go, blared a headline on the website Hellgate, while The Guardian asked, is Hannah Gatsby's Picasso exhibition really that bad? Even Gatsby's home turf paper declared, Hannah Gatsby's new Picasso exhibition is a joke. Yet in spite of, or perhaps because of, these strong reactions, people lined up at the Brooklyn Museum for the show's opening on June 2nd, increasing general admission by 51% over the weekend before. And the Brooklyn Museum is standing by the exhibition. It's problematic, Picasso according to Hannah Gatsby, arguing that it had anticipated objections when it hired Gatsby, who had eviscerated the Cubist painter's misogynistic attitudes towards women in a 2018 Netflix special, Nanette. The exhibition, its organizer said, was meant to prompt heated discussion. We welcome the debate, Ann Pasternak, the museum's director, said in an interview. We knew the show was going to be controversial, and if the result is that more people are engaging with the art, we think that's frankly awesome. If you want a show with hundreds of Picassos, go to Paris, she added. If you want an interesting conversation, come to Brooklyn. The exhibition, which was also organized by the museum's senior curators Lisa Small and Catherine Morris, presents paintings, drawings, and sculpture by Picasso alongside works by female artists in the museum's collection to explore the Spanish artist's troublesome legacy. 
Picasso abused his female muses, using them in his work. Two took their own lives. Every time I change wives, I should burn the last one. That way I'd be rid of them, he once said. They wouldn't be around to complicate my existence. Maybe that would bring back my youth too. You kill the woman and you wipe out the past she represents. On a recent morning at the museum, several visitors said they were moved by the exhibition. It's the violence that's inherent in his work that is getting to me and making me cry, said Lori Handelman, 64, who lives in New York and is retired. It's very poignantly through an angry lens, which I think is appropriate. Others wrestled with the show's negative take on Picasso. It's good to make a statement like this, said Gorain Jacobs, an artist from Berlin, but I still love Picasso. The critical response to the Gatsby show questioned the exhibition's seriousness of purpose, arguing that Gatsby's wall banter and sarcasm had substituted for a more substantive effort to engage with the artwork. Jason Farrago in the New York Times called the exhibition essentially a light amusement, one that shortchanges the women artists in the show. He added that it backs away from the close looking for the affirmative comforts of social justice-themed pop culture. Alex Greenberger in Art News critiqued the show's disregard for art history. But several reviews applauded the exhibition's alternative approach to the typical celebration of a genius artist. There is something refreshing about a show that doesn't let Picasso preen on his pedestal, wrote The Economist. Many of his works here feature an artist in a studio with a comely nude model, a tableau that feels at once charged and vampiric. The contrast between Picasso's pert breasts and curvy hips in a female bodies created by female artists feels potent. The Brooklyn Museum is no stranger to controversy. In 1999, the mayor, Rudolph Giuliani, threatened to cut its city financing in response to the exhibition of Chris Ophelia's painting of the Virgin Mary decorated with elephant dung in the museum's sensation show. In 2002, the museum hosted a Star Wars exhibition that reviewers criticized as lowbrow, and it was upbraided for featuring a Louis Vuitton shop in its 2008 Takashi Murakami exhibition, which included handbags. More recently, a show of work by the street artist and commercial designer Cause garnered some tough reviews but drew large crowds. The Gatsby show was developed in response to an invitation extended to several institutions by the Musée Picasso to mark the 50th anniversary of Picasso's death, in part by considering what the artist and his work mean today. It seemed necessary to think about that question in terms of the culture shift brought about by feminism over the 50 years since his death, Small said. We wanted to foster dialogues about the myths and tropes of the male-dominated modernist canon that Picasso exemplifies, the curator added. It was also an opportunity to present and interpret our own collection of feminist artworks. Among the other artists included are Michelaine Thomas, Judy Chicago, and Marilyn Minter, all of whom were informed that their pieces would be in a show. Thomas and Minter declined to be interviewed. Chicago says she saw in the derisive reviews confirmation of the misogyny that Gatsby confronted in a museum show and in Nanette. There is a level of hysteria and hostility in some of the writing that reminds me of the hysteria that surrounded the dinner party, Chicago said, referring to her famous feminist installation from the 1970s, which resides in the Brooklyn Museum. There is very little space to critique the great heroes of art history as if they're above analysis. This very odd idea that patriarchal attitudes and misogyny do not affect either the worldview or creative production of male artists, and of course they do, Chicago said. I celebrate and congratulate the Brooklyn Museum for trying to begin that conversation. Similarly, the feminist collective Guerrilla Girls, which also has a work in the show, wrote in an Instagram post, so many angry hysterical reviews from male art critics must mean that Pablo Matic is saying something really important. The museum invited Gatsby, who studied art history in college, to collaborate on the show because of Nanette, in which the comic and actor who identifies as genderqueer and uses they-them pronouns connects Picasso to Donald J. Trump and Harvey Weinstein, calls the artist rotten in the face cavity, and proclaims, I hate Picasso, I hate him. We felt Hannah's voice as an excellent addition to an expanded conversation about Picasso's legacy, Morris said and the emergence of feminist revisionism and critique of modernity. 
The curators work together on conceptualizing and choosing pieces for the show, with Gatsby an integral part of the process. The exhibition incorporates clips from the net, as well as wall text by Gatsby with quips such as, Art history taught me that historically women didn't have time to think thoughts. They were too busy napping naked alone in a forest. Next to the etching on paper, sculptor and model looking at herself, 1933. The comic wrote some alternative titles to some of the artwork. As for criticism that the exhibition is light on Picasso masterworks with only eight paintings, Pasternak said the Brooklyn Museum was a late addition to the 50th anniversary celebrations and had difficulty securing major loans. In interviews, Brooklyn Museum officials said that gravitas and levity were not mutually exclusive. No one is questioning that Picasso is a prodigy or a genius, said Morris, senior curator for the museum's Elizabeth A. Sackler Center for Feminist Art. Humor and seriousness don't exist in opposition to each other. Small, the museum's senior curator of European art, said she hopes the strong reactions don't prevent visitors from coming to a show and seeing for themselves and also doesn't have a dampening effect on other institutions that want to take risks. Scholars in the art world, many of whom have not yet seen The Gatsby Show, have been abuzz on the subject. Some see the piling on as unfair. Arnold L. Lehman, the former Brooklyn Museum director who presented the Sensation exhibition, said not only is it critical for museums to preserve art history as the tangible evidence of civilization, it is also critical for museums to examine and debate that history. But others view the show as a gimmick that should have been avoided. The museum has better things to do than to make the case for women artists by beating up on Picasso, the art historian Robert Storer said. Being anti-Picasso is so easy, it doesn't get to any of the underlining structural issues. What's needed is a critique of institutional sexism, not the targeting of one long-dead artist who's no longer making art. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Four Missing Children Found Alive After 40 Days in the Colombian Jungle by Genevieve Glatsky After 40 days in the Colombian rainforest, all four children who had been missing since the plane they were traveling and crashed on May 1st have been found alive, according to Colombia's president. They achieved an example of total survival that will go down in history, President Gustavo Petro said at a news conference on Friday night. When rescuers reached the site of the plane's wreckage last month, the bodies of the three adults on board were found, but there was no sign of the four children known to have been on the plane. In a case that captivated the nation, local indigenous communities from the remote region, along with the Colombian military, began scouring the jungle for the children, aged 13, 9, 4, and 1. The children are weak and are receiving medical attention, Mr. Petro said. The children were initially treated by combat medics from the Special Operations Forces that had been deployed in the search, and later transferred to the military base in the city of San Jose del Guavare, where they were in stable condition, the Defense Ministry said in a statement. Early Saturday morning, some of the children were photographed being carried on stretchers off a plane that had landed at a military airport in Batoga, the capital. The domestic news media reported that all four were later taken to a military hospital for treatment. We want to share the happiness of all of the Colombian people with this true miracle that we have known tonight, the Defense Minister Ivan Velasquez said in a video posted to social media. It was unclear as of Saturday morning who found the children or how they managed to survive for so long in a thick jungle that is prone to heavy rains and contains jaguars and poisonous snakes. It's a real miracle. It's going to be news for years to come, said Pedro Arenas, the human rights activist in San Jose del Guaverde. After 40 days, it is quite incredible news, so there is a lot of joy. There is real happiness. The children, members of the Huitoto indigenous community, had been traveling with their mother and an indigenous leader from the tiny Amazon community of Araracurawa, Colombia, to San Jose del Guaverde, a small city in central Colombia along the Guaviare River. The pilot reported engine failure and declared an emergency before the plane disappeared from radar around 7.30 a.m. on May 1st. 
The Colombian Air Force and other branches of the military soon deployed search and rescue planes and helicopters, as well as land and river teams. Indigenous communities joined the effort. Using a speaker that produces sound loud enough to be heard within a roughly mile-wide radius, they played a recording made by the children's grandmother in Huitoto, their native language, telling the children to stay in one place and that people were looking for them. Conflicting details about the case have confused and angered many Colombians. On May 17th, Mr. Petro announced on Twitter that the children have been found alive, but the next day he retracted the good news, saying that the nation's child welfare agency, the Colombian Institute of Family Welfare, had received incorrect information. Over the past few weeks, the authorities said they had reason to believe that the children were still alive, pointing to footprints, diapers, and shoes found in a search. They fended for themselves. It is their knowledge from the indigenous families, their knowledge on how to live in the jungle that has saved them, said Mr. Petro at the news conference. They are children of the jungle, and now they are children of Colombia. The AI revolution will change work, but nobody agrees how, by Sarah Kessler. In 2013, researchers at Oxford University published a startling number about the future of work. 47% of all United States jobs, they estimated, were at risk of automation over some unspecified number of years, perhaps a decade or two. But a decade later, unemployment in the country is at record low levels. The tsunami of grim headlines back then, like the rich and their robots are about to make half of the world's jobs disappear, look wildly off the mark. But the study's authors say they didn't actually mean to suggest doomsday was near. Instead, they were trying to describe what technology was capable of. It was the first stab at what has become a long-running thought experiment with think tanks, corporate research groups, and economists publishing paper after paper to pinpoint how much work is affected by or exposed to technology. In other words, if costs of the tools weren't a factor and the only goal was to automate as much human labor as possible, how much work could technology take over? When the Oxford researchers Carl Benedict Frey and Michael A. Osborne were conducting their study, the IBM Watson, a question-answering system powered by artificial intelligence, had just shocked the world by winning Jeopardy. Test versions of autonomous vehicles were circling roads for the first time. Now a new wave of studies follows the rise of tools that use generative AI. In March, Goldman Sachs estimated that the technology behind popular AI tools such as DAL-E and ChatGPT, could automate the equivalent of 300 million full-time jobs. Researchers at OpenAI, the maker of those tools, and the University of Pennsylvania found that 80% of the U.S. workforce could see an effect on at least 10% of their tasks. There's a tremendous uncertainty, said David Arthur, a professor of economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, who has been studying technological change and the labor market for more than 20 years, and people want to provide those answers. But what exactly does it mean to say that, for instance, the equivalent of 300 million full-time jobs could be affected by AI? It depends, Mr. Arthur said. Affected could mean made better, made worse, disappeared, doubled. One complicating factor is that technology tends to automate tasks, not entire occupations. In 2016, for instance, the artificial pioneer Jeffrey Hinton considered new deep learning technology capable of reading medical images. He concluded that if you work as a radiologist, you are like the coyote that's already over the edge of the cliff but hasn't yet looked down. He gave it five years, maybe 10, before algorithms would do better than humans. What he probably overlooked was that reading the images is just one of the many tasks, 30 of them according to the U.S. government, that radiologists do. They also do things like confer with medical professionals and provide counseling. Today, some in the field worry about an impending shortage of radiologists. And Mr. Hinton has since become a vocal public critic of the same technology he helped create. Mr. Frey and Mr. Osborne calculated their 47% number in part by asking technology experts to rate how likely entire occupations like telemarketer or accountant were able to be automated. 
but three years after their paper published, a group of researchers at the Zoo Center for European Economic Research, based in Mannheim, Germany, published a similar study that assessed tasks like explain products or services and found that just 9% of occupations across 21 countries could be automated. People like numbers, said Melanie Arntz, the lead author of the zoo paper. People always think that the number must be somehow solid, you know, because it's a number. But numbers can really be very misleading. In some scenarios, AI has essentially created a tool, not a full job replacement. You're now a digger who can use an excavator instead of a shovel, or a nurse practitioner with access to better information for diagnosing a patient. It's possible that you should charge more per hour because you're going to get a lot more done. In other scenarios, the technology is replacing your labor rather than complementing it, or turning your job from one that requires special skills to one that doesn't. That is not likely to go well for you. Technological developments throughout history have tended to mostly affect wages and wealth distribution, not how many jobs are available. This kind of exercise risks missing the forest by focusing on one very prominent tree, he said of studies that look at how much human work could be replaced by AI. What he considers to be another key focus, how artificial intelligence will change the value of skills, is difficult to predict because the answers depend partly on how new tools are designed, regulated, and used. Take customer service. Many companies have handed the task of answering phones to an automated decision tree, bringing in the human operator only to troubleshoot. But one Fortune 500 expertise software company has approached a problem differently. It created a generative AI tool to provide the agents with suggestions for what to say, keeping humans in their ability to read social cues in the loop. When researchers at Stanford and MIT compared the performance of groups who were given the tool with those who weren't, they found the tool significantly improved the performance of lower-skilled agents. Even if a job becomes completely automated, how displaced workers fare will depend on how companies decide to use technology in new kinds of work, especially work we can't yet imagine, said Darren Asmaglu, a professor at MIT and an author of Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. These choices will include whether to automate work entirely or use technology to augment human expertise. He said that the seemingly scary numbers predicting how many jobs AI could eliminate, even if it's not clear how, were a wake-up call. He believes that people could steer in a better direction, he said, but he is not optimistic. He does not think we are on a pro-human path. All estimates for how much work AI could take over are very dependent on humans. The researchers making the assumptions about what technology can do. Mr. Frey and Mr. Osborne invited experts to a workshop to score the likelihood of occupations becoming automated. More recent studies rely on information such as the database tracking AI capabilities created by the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a nonprofit digital rights group. Or they rely on workers using platforms like Crowdflower, where people complete small tasks for money. The workers score tasks on factors that make them prone to automation. For instance, if it's something with a high tolerance for error, it's a better candidate for a technology like ChatGPT to automate. The exact numbers are not the point, say many researchers involved in this type of analysis. I would describe our methodology as almost certainly precisely wrong, but hopefully directionally correct, said Michael Tree, an AI expert at McKinsey who co-authored a 2017 white paper suggesting that about half of work and 5% of occupations could be automated. What the data describes is, in some ways, more mundane than often assumed. Big changes are coming, and it's worth paying attention. A Russian pianist speaks out against the war from home by Javier C. Hernandez. When Russia invaded Ukraine last year, the pianist Polina Osetinskia, who lived in Moscow, was distraught. She took to social media to describe a sense of horror, shame, and disgust, and express solidarity with Ukraine, where she had often performed. But unlike many artists, activists, and intellectuals, Osatinskia, 47, decided to remain in Russia, where she lives with her three children, even as the Kremlin cracked down on free expression and made clear that any contradiction of the government's statements on the invasion could be treated as a crime. She has faced consequences for her views, 
Some concerts at state-run halls have been canceled, while others have been interrupted by the authorities. Osetinskia, who was born in Moscow, says her international career has also suffered because of her Russian identity. She lost some overseas engagements after the invasion, she says, because presenters were nervous about featuring Russian citizens. As a result, she says she often feels caught in the middle, seen suspiciously both inside and outside her country. Osatinskia will perform a program of Bach, Handel, Purcell, and Rameau at the 92nd Street Y in New York on Saturday, part of a five-city tour organized by the Cherry Orchard Festival, which promotes global cultural exchange. The program explores Baroque masterpieces featured in movies like The Godfather and The Talented Mr. Ripley. In between concerts and rehearsals this week, she discussed her opposition to the war, the role of music in healing, and her decision to remain in Moscow. These are edited experts from the conversation. You've made the difficult decision to stay in Russia even as you criticize the war. Why have you continued to speak out? This is a huge tragedy that is happening in my soul every day. Some of my friends tell me, take this war out of your heart. It's not your problem. I think it's our problem. A lot of us in the beginning didn't think it would turn out this way. Being Russian now is kind of like being crucified in the eyes of a lot of people. But I know that there are Russians who are truly against the war and against what is happening. I want people to know that there are a lot of people like this in Russia, and they've been put in prison for their views or for their likes on Facebook. And they've lost their jobs. They've lost their freedom just for openly expressing their opinions. I want people to know that there are a lot of good Russians, if I may say so. Are you concerned about your own safety? I was born in 1975 and remember the repression that was in the Soviet Union. And I have a feeling like I'm back in this time. And that's what makes me so sad. We have so many opportunities to grow, to be part of a world community, and instead we're still repeating our own story. And it's not the best pages of our story. Right now, I'm playing private concerts in Moscow because big halls are closed for me. I truly hope that I won't be put in jail for my views and opinions. Every time I talk openly about my feelings, I'm being watched. All I need now is to be able to work, to feed my children, and not be afraid that I might be a political prisoner. In March, the authorities in Moscow interrupted a concert in which you and several other artists were playing works by Shostakovich and Anne Weinberg. The police ran into the concert hall in the middle of the performance, and they said they got a call that there was a bomb inside, and they asked everyone to leave, and everybody stepped out onto the rainy street, and the police went inside with the bomb-sniffing dogs, and the audience stayed with me, there under the rain, and nobody left, and finally, when the police hadn't found any bombs, obviously, we got back into the hall and we continued the concert. How did that experience make you feel? At that moment, I was completely broken because I had the feeling I had been struggling for months for the possibility to play, and then it was interrupted. But I remember the people who have been thanking me for not leaving Russia. People write me letters telling me that they don't feel abandoned because I'm here. Many of the artists have left. Did you have any hesitations about speaking out when the war first started? On the first day of the war, I woke up at 7 a.m. because I was making my children breakfast and taking them to school. And I opened my eyes and I saw a post on Facebook by my friend that said, Oh God, no, no. I immediately understood what was going on. I just couldn't believe it was happening. I never had the idea that I could keep silent. I had to scream. What do you hope audience will take away from your tour in the United States this week? Baroque music very much suits our time because it has so much drama, so much tragedy, so much power, so much consolation at the same time. It sounds like it was written just now. The music that I am playing makes us look into ourselves, feeling empathy to anyone who is suffering right now, including ourselves, and gives us hope. That's what we need probably most right now. When the war started, this program made so much sense. I want as many people as possible to hear this music. Do you think your words and music can have an impact? I feel a little bit useless. I have no power to stop the war. I have no power to do anything to change things. 
But playing music and touching the keyboard, that's the only thing I can do to solve my own pain and to solve other people's pain. It's dangerous to say this right now, but I have to say that I love Russia. I can separate Russia, my country, my homeland, the beautiful people who live there, from the government and from the people who are making decisions. I can tell one from the other, but it seems to me that no one else can. Life is not just black and white like my keyboard. It has a lot of colors and it has a lot of shades. We should remember people's feelings and souls. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the June 10th issue of the New York Times. Your reader has been Ambria. Thank you for listening.